you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Job 38. Job 38. I read this week of a couple of occasions where uh, someone was called out about some comments that had been made on social media. Uh, There was a young man who had raised some money to buy beer, I think. And a reporter from the Des Moines Register looked back on some social media, found out he'd made some racist statements, and shamed him publicly. And then someone went back on the recorder's Twitter feed and found some statements he had made, and he got fired. Uh, All of that made me realize I'm glad I grew up in a day before all of that. If there had been cell phones and social media when I was a teenager, I'd probably be under some prison now somewhere. Because all of us, if we live long enough, make really dumb statements. You know, it's possible to make really dumb statements. For instance, I knew a a young man some years ago. uh, He was a pastor and he he was going to a a church to preach and he got a call from a pastor friend of his and he said, you don't need to be going to that church, not a good church, you can't go, don't do it. And the young man said to his friend, listen, they need a pastor, I need a church, I'm going to go, I'm just going to go for an interim. That was 33 years ago today when I preached in view of a call here at North Athens. Dumb statement. All of us make them. One of the dumbest statements that I think I ever read about, though, is attributed to King Alfonso X, who was the king of Spain in the 13th century. He is known in history as Alfonso the Learned. And this quote is attributed to him. Quote, had I been present at creation... I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. Now, Alfonso was not the first human being to think that he could run the universe better than God. The learned and wise Job, a man nurtured in the wisdom tradition of the ancient East, trained from childhood to think deeply about life, has come to the conviction that he does not live in a well run world. In the speeches that we've been looking at in the book of Job, he has repeatedly questioned the wisdom with which the Almighty governs the world. By implication, he too considers that he could have offered some helpful hints to the Creator for ordering the universe better, one of them being not condemning a righteous man to all the misery that he has endured, for instance. I know nothing about King Alfonso except that quote, but I do know that ever how learned he may have been, he could not possibly have given any useful hints to God about ordering the universe or running it, nor could Job. Job is about to receive what he has been asking for since we looked began looking at his struggles uh, at the beginning of the book. He's going to get an audience with Almighty God. But it's not going to be as he envisioned it. Once God breaks the silence, he gives two speeches. The first one recorded, Job 38, 1 through 40, verse 5. The next one beginning at chapter 40, verse 6. Uh, And I find it interesting and surprising what God does not 
do. And that is, he doesn't give Job any answers to his questions. He doesn't apologize for having been silent all of this time. He doesn't offer him any hint of information about what we know that transpired in chapters 1 and 2 and the conversations that occurred between God and Satan. Furthermore, God doesn't even acknowledge that Job has been through deep struggles. Uh, When he finally speaks to Job, he speaks with a reproof, with biting sarcasm. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Uh, By now, Job has gotten a bit independent and arrogant. God is going to communicate a number of things to him. But the first thing that he's going to do is to get Job's heart right again. Uh, If you take the time to count them, and somebody did, not me, but there are 77 questions in these two speeches. And the emphasis in all of the questions is that God is sovereign. Listen, if God is God, he is sovereign. One of the first theological insights that I ever had in life was that in order for God to be God, big G, not little g, then he had to be sovereign. That God had to be completely sovereign over all of his universe. That there is not a maverick molecule anywhere in the universe that is not under God's sovereignty. And that's what God is going to tell Job. I said from the beginning, one of the lessons that Job will teach you is this, that God says, I am God and you ain't. That's a good lesson to learn. And many people do not learn it. Many people do not learn it. Now I know there's been some discussion and not a little bit of panic this morning Because I said this sermon is part one and there's nine points. Nine of them. People, I haven't preached in two weeks. Give me a break, okay? All right. First of all, in the first three verses, our text tells us that God is sovereign over Job. The first line is what you have to consider. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Singular pronouns are used. God is talking to Job. He's not talking to the to the other four that are there or ever how many have been have been present. Four that we know that have spoken. He's talking directly only to Job. The first set of questions revolves around a single thing. Can you explain or can you control my creation? It's as if the Lord is saying, just answer the question, Job. Can you explain the creation? Can you control it? Just answer the question. And it ends with a statement of humility which Job makes in the third, fourth, and fifth verses of Job chapter 40. And God isn't through. The next set of questions ask, can you change or subdue my creation? And that is the, uh, the end. It ends with Job's statement of repentance. Job essentially says, no, no way. I have, I have spoken wrongly, and I repent. Uh, so God begins his interrogation with the creation. He accuses Job, 
of darkening counsel by words without knowledge. In the context, the word counsel is a very broad term for the mysterious and paradoxical way in which the world is ordered and operates. We look at the world and often we are mystified. Some people, to the point of despair, are losing their faith. How could God allow this? How could God allow that? How could God permit that to happen? I can't believe that a loving God would do this or do that. Uh, Job is not convicted of the supposedly secret sins that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar have been accusing him of, but he has spoken many words, and some of those words lacked wisdom and knowledge. Elihu has said in chapter 34, Job speaks without knowledge, and his words are without insight. And now God agrees with Elihu's verdict. Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Job will also agree. In chapter 42, verse 3, uh, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. That is Job. So it is about Job's words that God challenges him. He has, he has spoken words about the government of the world. Not only how that has impacted him, but more generally how it has impacted others. For example, he has accused God in chapter 12, verse 22, of bringing deep darkness to light, which seems to mean that Job accuses God of introducing evil into the world, that God is responsible for all of the things in the world that are terrible and evil and vile. He has accused God of shaking the earth and making its stable pillars tremble as he introduces chaos where there should be order in chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. But Job has spoken those words in ignorance, for he doesn't know what he claims to know. He has spoken as if he had cosmic knowledge, as if he knew the beginning and the end, if he could, as if he has really grasped how the universe is governed. And therefore, he can be critical of the one who is governing it. Do you think you know enough about the government of the universe that you can criticize God for the way he governs? Many, many, many people do today. Although at the end, God will affirm that Job has spoken rightly about him, for now he's going to say that Job has spoken wrong in a number of ways. So we're going to look at that. We'll get to chapter 42. We'll talk about in what sense Job's words were right. But now let's talk about where they're wrong. God challenges Job. He says, dress for action. Uh, literally, gird up your loins. Tuck the robe in your belt. Be ready for action. Uh, he's to do this like a man. And the word man means like a warrior, a strong man. In our, in our vernacular today, God is saying to Job, man up, boy. Man up. I'm going to ask you some questions and I want to hear your answers. This could be either affirmative or sarcastic. I think in the context and looking at the words, it is sarcastic. 
It is God saying to Job, you are not nearly as smart as you think you are. The answer that God gives to Job is just all of these questions. Job wanted to question God, but it is God who is questioning Job. And the answer to each of the questions is simply for Job to say, no, not me. No, I don't know, but you know. No, I I didn't do that, but you did. Uh, In a way, the questions that God asks of Job gives him his answer in a far deeper and more merciful way than if he had unraveled all the scenes that happened in chapters 1 and 2 and showed them to Job. He is sovereign over Job. In verses 4 through 7, God said he is sovereign over the earth. The universe is pictured as a great building project. He has a foundation that has been laid. It has measurements that have been drawn out by a surveyor. There is a measuring line. There are uh, bases, secure footings, strong sockets for the pillars to rest in. There is a cornerstone. God is the architect who designed the universe. He is the surveyor who laid it all out in accordance with that design, and he is the builder who constructed it. The universe is a building that is built to last. It is done perfectly. All of that, of course, that biblical imagery of God uh, building the universe uh, is spoken of in the Psalms and the Proverbs. In Proverbs 8, the metaphorical figure of wisdom being present at creation alongside of Job uh, pictures wisdom as a grand lady who has built a fine house. Uh, If Job had been present at creation, he would have embodied wisdom. He would have been wisdom itself. Of course, he wasn't there. He is not wisdom. That's why he speaks words without knowledge. Verse 7, he says, All the morning stars sang with joy. Uh, Or another translation, All the sons of God shouted. This is not the stars that are made on the fifth day of creation. Again, this is poetic imagery. God is talking about all of the angelic beings all across heaven who sang for joy as they marveled at God's creation. The sons of God that we met in chapters 1 and 2. So when the universe is brought into existence, supernatural beings sang for joy at the wisdom and the majesty and the power of God because they looked at it and saw, as God did, that it was good, a superlatively good creation. It's that fundamental goodness in creation that Job has questioned, especially in in his lament back in chapter 3. To Job's jaundiced eyes, the evil and the disorder in creation wiped out its goodness, and all that's left is something essentially... Uh, and fundamentally evil. And God says, no, no. When the world was created, these supernatural beings sang for joy because they saw that the universe was good. Uh, It is important, although a bit mysterious, to be clear that evil did not come into this creation 
from somewhere else. There was no somewhere else for it to come from. The origin of evil is one of the great questions of theology. Where did it come from? If God is not the author of evil, as we know the Bible clearly teaches, then where did evil come from? Now, that's not our topic of discussion for today, but I, I would say this. I think you're on to something if you understand that when God made man, when God made the world, when God created everything, he did not clone himself. God is immutable. He is incapable of change. The creation was made mutable. Man was made mutable. He was capable of change. But God proclaims everything in the universe to be good, and the angels sang about it. And God says to Job, in essence, Job, if you had had perfect knowledge of creation, you would understand that it not only was, but it remains a source of cosmic joy that supernatural beings sing about. Uh, but the next section answers the question, what about evil? Uh, and it says God is sovereign over the sea. Now remember that Job is 95% Hebrew poetry. Uh, and this section, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, says that there is a place for evil in the world, but it has strict limits upon it. In verse 8, the imagery changes abruptly, and God invites Job to think about the sea. Now, in the, in the Hebrew world, the sea is the symbol of disorder, of chaos, of danger, of evil, and ultimately of death. Remember that when John writes in the book of the Revelation, one of the things he says that will not be in the new heaven and the new earth is a sea. There was no more sea. Uh, earlier, Job had asked God, am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? Uh, an imagery of evil. The sea is personified as being evil. Uh, so, we think of a, a, a wild ocean coastline with the waves crashing into the rocks and water and the spray going everywhere. Uh, and we are invited in these verses to think of the sea as being like a baby. Uh, the, the breaking of the mother's water at the end of a pregnancy and the baby bursting out of the womb and causing havoc from that day on. Some of you can identify with that as I can. But here is a baby who is put in swaddling clothes. Uh, verse 9, a swaddling band to restrain him. Put in some kind of playpen where he can't roam free and cause all kinds of trouble. It's an unruly infant under discipline. There are limits. Verse 10, constraining his movements and his actions, saying, Thus far can you come and no farther. As parents discipline a child, this is saying that God puts limits on evil. There is a place for evil in the world, but is under strict limits by God. Why? I don't know. Why did God do it that way? I don't know. When we get to heaven, we will ask him. But as for now, we don't know. Uh, so, 
evil, and I'm saying this with a great deal of reverence and care, evil is God's baby. Not in the sense that God is the origin of evil, uh, or as if evil would show forth God's character, for it does not, but in the sense that evil is no more a threat to God than a badly behaved toddler is a threat to his parents. When the power of evil is pitted, pitted against the power of God, it's no contest. I've said often uh, the, the, the imagery in the book of the Revelation of the battle of Armageddon and the forces of good and evil, it's only a battle in the sense that there's two sides. It's as if I would go up here two blocks up the street and stand on the middle of the railroad tracks in front of a speeding freight train and do battle with the freight train. Yeah, that's not going to end well for me, you know. It's a battle because there's two sides, but that's, that's about it. So, what is, what is God saying to Job here? First, evil has a limit. God says to evil, thus far can you go? No farther. Even in Job's misery, there's an end to it. God will say, you cannot do any more than this. Uh, I think that there is nothing that provides more comfort to the children of God than a robust belief in the sovereignty of God. That what has come in my life has come through the hands of a sovereign God. And that God can say, this far, no farther. Can't go any further than that. All of the sickly alternatives that we read about, the process theism, open theism, and all of those things provide no comfort for the children of God. But the sovereignty of God provides great comfort. And the other truth is this, there is a place for evil in the created order. The sea is both restrained and protected by God. As the language of the infant's clothing, the swaddling band suggests, the sea is shut in, but it's not dried up. Why doesn't God just remove evil from the world? You remember the story of uh, Robinson Crusoe and how he's telling Friday about creation and about God and about the, the story of the Bible, and, and, and Crusoe gets to that part where he says, and God sent his son to die for sinners, to overcome sin. And Friday looks at him and says, I don't understand, why didn't he just kill the devil? <laughs> and Crusoe sends him to the other side of the island. <laughs> yeah, why doesn't God just do away with evil? I don't know, but he doesn't. And so that means there, it must be good in the sense that God does not do away with it. Uh, so that brings up another question. If evil is restrained by the sovereignty of God, is it forever? Will it last forever? Will there always be sin and evil in the universe, in God's creation? And he answers that question, verses 12 through 15, by talking about God being sovereign over the Son. And the crucial point of these verses is that the structure of creation shows that evil will one day be destroyed. 
basically, we could boil down these verses to say that every time there is a sunrise, it should remind you of the fact that evil will one day be destroyed. Remember what Jesus said about evil men? They love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. God asked Job about waking up the dawn. What a beautiful picture. As if dawn was some sleepy man lying in a bed somewhere and he wakes him up and he shakes out evil from the skirts of the earth. Job, look at the sunrise. The light comes every morning. It dispels the darkness. The darkness flees from the light. Wicked men hate the light. They love the darkness. But every day the light comes. And though there is a place in this universe for evil, it will not last forever. All of the, these verses say in a vivid and poetic way, every time the sun rises, it is evidence there is judgment to come. And one day God will judge wickedness and sin and evil. Every time the light is switched on in creation, it reminds us of the promise that the darkness will not last forever. There will come a time when there will be no more sea. There will be no more evil. There will be no more wickedness. So God has set before Job a deep, penetrating portrait of the fundamental structure of the universe, a cosmos that is, that is ultimately good, uh, in which there is a necessary place for evil, but that evil is restrained by the sovereignty of God and will one day be completely destroyed. The universe is far more mysterious than Job had even imagined. Uh, here is a universe in which the ugliness of evil is a part of the creation of God and ultimately will serve the glory of God. So the natural question arises, how can we be sure? How can we be sure that God controls evil? How can we be sure that God ultimately wins in the end? How do we know that everything, everything, is under God's control. How can, how can we be sure that there's not some dark spot somewhere in the universe where there is an independent and autonomous power of evil outside of God's control that would threaten his purpose? So he comes to another point in verses 16, 17, and 18. God is sovereign over the place of the dead. Extremes fascinate human beings. We like to watch shows about the first exploration of the South Pole or the North Pole. We like to watch about people who, who climb the highest mountains and, and who go into the depths of the sea. We even have extreme sports these days. Why do you think that is? I think one of the reasons is we want to know that there are people out there, though we'd rather probably do it from our armchairs, but there are those who go to these extremes and that they have dominion over them. They, they have control over them. Uh, so the next passage takes Job to an extremity where no man has gone and returned. All of you have traveled perhaps a great deal. Uh, I, I don't know. I think I counted up here not too long ago and I've 
in, in my lifetime, I, I, I think I've been in like 17 or 18 different countries in the world, uh, three different, four different continents. All, maybe you've traveled much more than that. But I know one place that you have never been. None of you. You've not died and come back. All of us have experienced death in our lifetimes. If you're as old as I am, a lot of death. My parents are gone. My brothers and sisters are gone. Many friends are gone. Uh, many of the people that were here 33 years ago today are gone. But I've gone to the place of the dead and returned. I have not been there. And no matter how prepared we may think we are for it, it holds a good deal of anxiety for us because we haven't been there. So, God talks about the springs of the sea, the recesses of the deep, the place in the wild disordered sea that the Bible describes as Shale or Hades, the place that poetically lies below the surface of the earth and of the sea, the place of the dead. Uh, and essentially, Job, God says to Job, have you been there? Have you seen the gates of death? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you been to the entrance of Shale itself? Uh, have you been to the extremity of existence that is death itself? Job may have felt that in his misery he was knocking on the doors of death, but he had not yet been there. For all the darkness of his sufferings, he doesn't have any comprehensive universal understanding of death, and he needs that in order to understand the universe. And by implication, the Lord knows all about these regions, and they are no threat to him. For the Bible says that with God, darkness is as light. All of that lies outside of Job's experiential knowledge, beyond his region of control, but by implication, it does not lie beyond God's control. Death lies beyond our experience, for now anyway. We have not experienced death. We have not been to the region of the dead and returned. If it is true of death that, that God controls it, then there is nothing in the universe that God does not control. Everything is under his control. Unlike Job, we now know that one man has gone into death and has returned. He has gone deep into the place of death and returned victorious. That terrible place that has been known to God since it began is a place that the sting has been removed from. The passage that I read for you this morning for the call to worship is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. Sometimes people ask me, do I have pictures of Jesus anywhere? I usually tell them no, because I think that's a violation of the second commandment, first of all. 
And secondly, because I've not seen anything that looks like him. I mean, have you seen a picture of Jesus as a man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, the hair of his head, white wool like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters? Have you seen a picture of Jesus like that? I have not. But notice what Jesus says to John. These are some of the greatest words in all of human literature. Fear not, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus Christ alone has died and is alive forevermore. And he now holds the keys to death and to Hades. He has been to that place that Job has not, that we have not. And he has returned a victor over it. And he promises to all who put their faith and their trust in him that he will deliver them from eternal death. That though you may die physically, you will never die spiritually. Never be separated from God. That, that is the promise. That God is sovereign even over death. Let's stand together and have a word of prayer.